with you this morning. I'm so glad to be here. Missed you all. Uh, however, I had a wonderful time. I'm going to take it back. It was good. Um, yeah, Janet struggled last night with some restless leg, and she got zero sleep, so um, she's, she, I, I pray that she's in a sweet sleep right now. But I think that's the best thing I've done in 50 years of marriage, to take my wife on that cruise, because she was like so tranquil and joyful and just out on the deck sucking up the rays and the wind uh, on the beach chair, reading her Bible, uh, chatting with people, not having to make meals. I mean, it was fantastic. So I just, I praise the Lord. One of the surprises on the trip was I got there for Palm Sunday worship, right? And this lady comes up to me and says, are you a pastor? I was hoping nobody would notice. I said, yeah, who told you? She said, oh, I can spot pastors. <laughs> so she said, you're preaching today. I'm like, yes, ma'am. I'm happy to bring the word. So I brought the word on Palm Sunday, and then they asked me to preach again on Easter. So there were like 150 people there on Palm Sunday and over 200 on Easter. I mean, the ship was rocking. It was great with, with, with believers. But somehow, there was a Catholic priest on board as well, really nice guy from Baltimore. He got his way completely paid. And he had mass every day, you know, and then, and then all the services. And I think everybody assumed that I had my cruise paid for and that I was the Protestant chaplain on the boat. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I had 20, I had 20 uh, New Testaments with me, uh, and I passed out every one. And I'm telling you that plus nothing has been visited from Australia. Uh, they, they were all over the globe, China, everywhere. I mean, people were from everywhere. And since they assumed that I was like the chaplain, I got to share the gospel with people. They poured their hearts out to me. Hey, chaplain, can I talk to you? <laughs> sure. Let me just make sure my wife is having a good time. So I go over and I check her out. She's having a great time. So I, I just had an opportunity. So you just never know where you're going to be when God's going to call on you to share, to share the good news. And I wish I would have had at least our, um, uh, the people that went through the, uh, uh, the SEND course, right? The SENT lab. Uh, I wish I would have had those people there, man. I could have kept you busy for two weeks. It was, it was, really, it was really great. I had an opportunity to share the gospel with uh, a lot of people. But what I also heard was what I want to talk about today. There were a lot of Thomases on the, on the cruise. Just like there's a lot of Thomases that live in our community, right? And um, 
How many of you have ever been given a nickname? How many of you have ever been given a nickname? Well, my dad's nickname was Fat. And you know, every time I heard that, I'm like, my dad's, my dad wasn't fat, but he was called fat, and he absolutely could not shake it. As I was growing up, uh, I was called Snot Rag because my last name's Hanky. I kid you not, Tissue, Hanky Panky, right? So if I go back to my hometown. Very few people will say Bruce. They'll say Hanky Panky. Um, they'll say Hank. Um, you know, and I didn't like that. I did not like that at all. So I'm here today to take an in-depth look in the scripture to see whether this guy for 2,000 years that people have been calling Doubting Thomas, whether that really fits, fits his nickname. Are you with me? We're, gonna, we're going to it. So the first time in the scripture that we read of Thomas is in John chapter 10 and 11, just prior to the time that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 10, around the middle of chapter 10, our Lord is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's teaching the truth to people. And for the first time, he comes out and says, I am God. I and the Father are one, right? And so they say, we're infuriated. You can't be God. And they accused him of blasphemy. You remember? And then what they wanted to do was they wanted to take him outside of the village and stone him or throw him over the cliff, right? But he escapes their grasp. And then in chapter 11 of John, After Jesus is accused, he goes back across the Jordan River. And then word comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is dying. And three days later, Jesus decides, this is the time. It is right. I am going to go to Lazarus' home, which meant a trip back into the dangerous part of Jerusalem where he was just thrown out. And this led the disciples to exclaim in verse 8 of chapter 11 of John, only a short time ago, Jesus, the people are trying to stone you. And now you want to go back again? And Jesus said, yes, get your gear together and let's go. But there was only one disciple that responded to that, and it was Thomas. While the others shuffled their feet, looked at the ground, or looked up and said, oh no, here we go again. Thomas said, all right, let's go, and let's die along with him. Thomas said that. In essence, Thomas said, come on, all you scaredy cats. Let's stand up for Jesus. Sure, maybe we're putting our necks in a noose, but the master has work to do in Bethany. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not seem to be doubt 
to me. Does that seem to be a doubtful statement to you? I think it's pretty bold. Let's go. In fact, I see courage. I see courage in Thomas. And because of Thomas's courage, because he said, let's go, the disciples were privileged not only to see Jesus raise a man from the dead, his best friend, but to hear our Lord say some of the most treasured words that he ever uttered. Do you remember? When they followed Thomas and they went with Jesus to Bethany, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who dies believing in me shall live again. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So thanks to Thomas, the other 11 had an experience with Jesus that taught them that death is nothing to fear for the Christian. Okay, the second time that we see Thomas is in the upper room on the night that Jesus was arrested. You remember I preached on this a, a couple of weeks ago. He took the basin and the towel, and what did he do? He washed their feet, and he foretold his betrayal, and he told them that he was going to die. And as he spoke of leaving them, Peter said, Lord, where are you going? You remember that? And Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then Jesus said, you know the way and the place where we're going. Now you know by this time, the disciples don't have a clue what he was talking about. Not one clue. And I think Jesus said this to solicit a response from the disciples, an answer that would indicate that somehow they've been listening to his teaching for the past three years, and they understand where he was going. But instead, Jesus got dead silence. Dead silence came over the room. No one said anything because none of the 12 understood where Jesus was going. 11 of them were afraid to ask. Maybe they didn't want to appear ignorant. But Thomas didn't care. Here's Thomas again. He was one of those people who couldn't stand an unanswered question. So he spoke up and he asked, what was on the mind of all of the disciples? He said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And I think Jesus smiled approvingly because in his kingdom, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Amen. 
I believe our Lord wanted Thomas to ask that so he could give the following reply. After Thomas asked that question, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It appears that Thomas was all in to following Jesus. He only wanted to know the way, and he had the guts to ask the question. Now, does that sound like a doubter to you? Does it? It sounds like a person of courage to me. Let's look at the final time, our scripture this morning. You turn to John chapter 20, verse 19. It's after the resurrection. They're all gathered together in the room. And somehow Jesus is there. Didn't open the door, but he's there. And he said, peace be with you. My peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And they all would have been thinking about Genesis, right? God breathed his word and he came to life. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit and receive the keys of the kingdom. Because now, whoever you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever you don't forgive, they are not forgiven. So here we read on that first Easter Sunday, the resurrected Jesus miraculously, miraculously appearing to the disciples. And what does he do? He shows them the scars in his hands, and he shows them his side. But Thomas was not with them. He was not there. However, when he returned and the disciples told him what had happened, Thomas uttered his famous statement of doubt. Now let's look at this in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. He did this all for Thomas. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I've met a lot of people like Thomas in my, in my ministry. I've met a lot recently. I met a number of those people on the boat. And I would say that they are not so much doubting as they are disillusioned. I believe Thomas was more disillusioned with Jesus and disillusioned about the Christian life and the Christian journey than he was doubting. Because remember, he's the guy who said, let's go, let's follow him. Come on, let's find out. Now, one of the things that I want to be sure and note here is that when we piece together the various gospel accounts, we can see that Thomas wasn't alone in doubting. He wasn't alone. After Jesus appeared to Mary, Mary Magdalene in the garden, and she didn't even know who he was. She had no idea until Jesus did what? He approached her and he said, Mary. Mary, and she said, Rabboni, which means rabbi or teacher. I'm your disciple. And then she went and she immediately told the, the disciples what had happened. And if you look in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 10, you read this. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of Jesus, and the other told what happened to the disciples? Now listen to this. All of the other 11 disciples there, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So why don't we say doubting Peter, doubting Mary, doubting John? Why does Thomas get the rap? I knew Thomas would thank me for this sermon this morning. That Thomas right there. <laughs> the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were right there with him. And they had no idea who he was until Jesus broke that bread. And they finally recognized him. So I would like to suggest that as we approach Thomas and we approach other people in our world, that people are more disillusioned than they are doubting. And they're disillusioned because of their experiences that they have had. Take Thomas, for instance. Perhaps he felt betrayed. Perhaps he felt brokenhearted. Perhaps he thought to himself, I put all my trust in this man. I thought he was the Messiah who was going to come to lead his people into the new kingdom. And now my friends think I'm a fool. I've been burned once, but I'm not going to be burned again. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt disillusioned with Jesus? 
I don't know how many bedsides I've been by of people whose loved ones are dying. And they said, he healed other people. Why can't he heal my loved one? And there's silence, complete silence. They don't even believe that they hear back from God. Jesus, our Savior on the cross, said, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself had to come to grips with the mission that the Father had for him, that he would lay down his life, that he would be like that seed, that the body of that seed had to be planted in the earth, and the body of the seed dies. But there has to be life, and I'm quoting Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. There has to be life in that seed before it is buried for there to be germination and life on the other side of the earth. And so it is. Jesus is the one. He's the first fruit. He's the first fruit that went into the earth. He died. He died. And by the power of Almighty God, he was raised and given a new body, and our promise of a new body, if we share in a death like his, we shall certainly share in a resurrection like his, because Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If someone is not disillusioned with Jesus, then you're going to hear what I heard this past week. People that are disillusioned with the church, with the body of Christ. I talked with one man, and he said, I gave my life to Christ, and I was called into leadership. And I was considering being a leader. He was from another denomination. He wasn't a Presbyterian. And I was considering being a leader. So I went to hang out with the other leaders, and they took me to a bar. They took me to a bar, and then they started womanizing. And he said, that was 10 years ago, and that's the last time I was back in church. Now, I would say that man, he came to the Easter service because I had met him during the week. He said, are you preaching? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm coming because we had just kind of shared stuff, right? And I witnessed to the gospel, and he said, I love Jesus. It's just I'm disillusioned with the church. Now, we can poo-poo that. We can say, well, nuts to that guy. But I don't think that that's what Jesus would do. I think Jesus would say, Look, I suffered for that. I suffered so that you might understand that something has to die right there. And that's what I told the man. I told him about 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like a seed. I said, so he believes he's going to heaven, puts his faith in Jesus Christ, just has no, no room for the church at all. And I said, Jesus loved the church. 
I said, look at the agony he went through. He did that for the body that he was calling to himself. And I said, so here's what I hear you saying. You are letting one group of people that you had an expectation for determine how you are going to follow Jesus. He said, yeah, I guess that's right. I guess I'm doing that. I said, the cross is open. I said, what, what's your confession? What's your confession? He said, well, I guess I have to confess that I've been following people instead of Jesus. I said, well, you can do it right now. So he did. And I've got his phone number. I'm going to call him this week to see whether he's gone back into the, into the body of Christ. You see, I really believe that that's what happened to Thomas. Thomas was disillusioned because Thomas thought that Jesus was going to bring in a military coup to overthrow the Romans. That's what Thomas thought. No, th that's not what Jesus was doing. But Thomas needed time to be able to understand who Jesus was. And so, right there, in that room, Jesus comes back to him. And he comes to him in relationship. And he said, Thomas, put your fingers in my wounds. And what did Thomas say? My Lord, my Lord, and my God. It was Christ who took the initiative to restore the broken relationship. Jesus made a second appearance to the disciples, and he immediately singled out Thomas. Whether it was doubt or disillusionment, it only took a moment for Thomas's hesitation to be wiped away as he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. C.S. Lewis said, I never had the experience of looking for God. I was the, it was the other way around. God was the hunter, and I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and he fired. Christ is here this morning. He's here. He is seeking, as he always does, to make his presence known to you and to me. When we leave here today, as we go through our week and we encounter people, Christ is always seeking to make his presence known. He's seeking the opportunity for people to come to know him. He's seeking to heal the brokenness of our sin, to heal wounded spirits, He's seeking in each of our lives to make us new as he promised in 2 Corinthians 5.17. When I died and rose again, I made you new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Know that 
He is Lord. He is God. And he lives forever. May I invite us this morning to come to Jesus and to see it in this way. I believe, after many years of ministry, that people have no problem most of the time with who Jesus is in their mind. They read the scripture. They believe that Jesus existed. They believe that he's the Savior. They believe that he's the Lord of their lives. But what does the, what does the scripture say in Romans 10.10? 10? Okay. Uh, that's John 10.10. 10. But Romans 10.10 10 says, it is with the mouth that I confess and with the heart that I believe. Right? If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and, and are saved. I believe that Thomas and others in our society are in the condition of disillusionment because they have no problem believing the gospel with their head, but they have not believed it with their heart. And if we doubt, doubting is, I believe that, but there's something else that I believe more than that. Okay. So if I believe the gospel with my head, but in my heart I'm disillusioned and it doesn't feel true, the gospel doesn't feel true, then... I'm double-minded. Double-minded is not about having two different beliefs in your head. It's about having one belief in your mind and another belief in your heart. And you see, Jesus wants it to go to the heart. He wants us to follow him with our hearts. He doesn't just want us to know that he is the savior of the world. He wants us to jump in and allow him to be the savior of our lives. He wants to clean up those beliefs that are in our hearts that we got through our experiences in this life that when we read the word of God, in our head we can say, yeah, I know that's true. But with our hearts, we don't believe it. People don't believe it. And that is the journey. Now what I just described is, and I truthfully believe this with my whole heart, that when Jesus died and rose again, he was showing us a rhythm for our life. That we always come, we die and he raises us up again. We die, he raises us up again. We die, he raises us up again. I've said this numerous times, but I really believe it. That when we come to the cross, we believe it with our heads.
but we got all this junk in our suitcase that, that God doesn't automatically transform, right? So he says, you're a new creation in Christ. I know who I am in Christ's righteousness. I claim that. Hallelujah. Right? I know. I profess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Salvation. Right? That's, that's God does it. God gives me his righteousness. God's given me a new nature. I'm no longer the caterpillar. I'm not a caterpillar anymore. I'm a butterfly. But I'm a butterfly that's in the cocoon. And what does a butterfly have to do to get out of that cocoon? Kick. What happens if you pull a butterfly out? It dies. It dies. Right? What is the cocoon? The cocoon are the old beliefs that we bring with us to the cross. The cocoon are the old beliefs that challenge the gospel. They're the beliefs that we believe in our heart that we find ourselves to be double-minded. And that's why the Holy Spirit was sent. Because before Jesus left, he said, I'm leaving. And they said, oh no, no, don't leave. He said, if I don't leave, I won't be everywhere. I'm going to be here. But they didn't believe that. They didn't know that, right? So they had a heart problem when he said, I'm going to leave. He said, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to do what? To lead us into all truth. How do we come to truth? We come to truth in our disillusionment. We come to truth in our doubting. If I had two vases up here, one of them with real flowers in it, and the other one with some pretty good-looking artificial flowers, and you were standing at the back, you couldn't tell the difference. What do you have to do in order to tell the difference between the real and the fake? You have to walk up. You have to put your hands on it. Ah, Thomas, he has to put his hands, right? You got to put your hands. You got to put your hands on your heart. You got to open it. You got to allow the Holy Spirit to show you what is getting in the way from your believing, from your being able to believe and walk by faith. And I happen to believe, and I was not expecting to do any of this on the cruise. Not expecting. But you know, when people come to you and it's obvious that they want to share something and then they start sharing junk that's coming out of their heart, right? What do you do with that junk? You don't appeal to their heads. You say, go ahead, get close to it. Feel, oh, that's artificial, isn't it? You put that there. God has something better. God has the real truth. You don't really believe the truth. There's something in your heart that feels more true. You're doubting. That's what doubt is. That's all doubt is, right? Because we don't save ourselves by our perfect believing. God is the one who saves us, right? He's the one who saves us. Why? So we can keep dying and being raised again. Die, being raised again. That's why in the Presbyterian Church, confession is so significant. Yeah. 
It's significant. It's not a time just to come in and say, I know I'm a sinner. I learned it in the catechism. It's a time to come and say, you know what? I'm not getting along with my neighbor. I'm not getting along with my neighbor. I believe the gospel. Well, you know what your problem is? You've never died. You've never let Jesus take you into the tomb with that. Come on. Come up. See, what is it that you believe? I believe this. Oh, no. That's not the truth. The Holy Spirit tells you the truth. And now what do you do? Praise God. I couldn't do that by myself. So, to me, it's not Easter, death, resurrection, praise God, hallelujah. Every moment of every day is an opportunity for the same rhythm. Death, resurrection, death, resurrection. And you know what? I invited all of the people that I talked to into that rhythm because I told them what I just told you. And I said, what do you think you're believing in your heart that keeps you from living out what you know to be true in your mind? And they had no problem identifying it. Because every, most people know what's there. Most people know what's keeping them there. Right? It's just, are you ready? Come. I don't live anymore. The first Easter, I found out Bruce Hankey doesn't live anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, this is not only a message for us, but it's also a message for how we engage people in our world. We engage them with the good news of the gospel, but we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and get dirty and allow the dust and the dirt that, that, that has been building up in their hearts. you got to stay there with them and experience it and let them bring it forth because how are they going to know the truth if they don't have the opportunity to face their disillusionment and double-mindedness? So that's what we're called to as his disciples and his believers. So I'm going to call us to a time of prayer.